I really think that we should have a company boat. Um, <laughs> I'm serious. You can put this in the podcast too. Don't cut it. Hello and welcome. My name's Carl Norsen-Polius and I'm the content manager here at Sydney Theatre Company. Today I'm with Elizabeth Gadsby, our new resident designer, whose first show with us, Disgraced, has recently opened in Wharf One Theatre. Elizabeth is a graduate of the National Institute of Dramatic Arts Theatre Design course, but also a graduate of the prestigious National Arts School in Darlinghurst. She's designed sets and costumes for companies including Sydney Chamber Opera, Belvoir, Griffin Theatre, as well as the Perth and Adelaide Festivals. Her work as an artist and designer has also taken her to Berlin, London, Mexico City and Venice. Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks. What does it mean to be a resident designer at Sydney Theatre Company? Well, basically it's a great opportunity as a designer to be based and embedded within a company rather than be working freelance. And one of the great things about it is that not only do you get to work with the amazing teams that are here on the productions that they're producing for stage, but you also get to be involved in the company in a number of different ways as well. So I am currently designing the event for the fundraising dinner, which is going to be held in two weeks' time. And I'm also gearing up to do the art direction for the photo shoots that will um, launch our season for next year for the 2017 season. So I get to diversify my skill set within the company context and learn a lot about how the company runs as a whole rather than just focusing on producing work for one play at one point in time. And is this something you've done before? Had you been resident in a company before or is this the first time? No, this is the first time. I've been a freelance artist or designer pretty much for the whole of my career so it's very exciting for me to have something that is stable like this and to be part of a company where there is the stability of being in a company structure. And what what drew you rather to the creative arts in the first place? My grandmother's a painter and my father's a graphic designer and my mother's an art teacher and my grandfather was also an artist. So I kind of, it always was a viable path to take and I think that as a child I did a lot of different disciplines in a variety of arts. I did a lot of Um, Shakespeare actually when I was younger I went to a primary school where we did Shakespeare plays every single year so when I was about four I think I was cast as one half of Shylock Um, (laughs) (laughs) which is the lower half the upper half (laughs) well just split down the middle so sometimes I would say the lines and sometimes my other little friend would say the lines for this character and we got to wear beards because obviously we were playing middle, a middle-aged man. But um, that was probably my first introduction to theatre and I loved it. So I performed in theatre for quite a long time. And I, also perfor- I was also a dancer. I trained in classical Indian dance for about 15 years. And then I also loved art, so I was always drawing. And when I got to the end of my high school, I, when I finished my high school certificate, I applied to NIDA for acting and I applied to the National Art School for art and I got into NAS and I didn't get into NIDA so my path kind of went down the path of a visual artist first. So and just to go back a bit you did dance for 15 years so yeah. classical Indian dance yeah. did that has that continued for you are you still interested in sort of the physical performance as well? It manifested in my work as an artist because I did installation and performance-based work. Post the National Art School, I, when I was practising as an artist, my main mediums main medium was installation and I also did performance work on the side. But I stopped um, training as a dancer probably when I was about 20, in my early 20s, and I taught for a little bit, um, 
haphazardly, but apart from that, I haven't really continued it as a discipline. So, so getting into the NAS kind of that solidified the the notion of the visual arts, I guess. Yeah, very as, much so. As your place, mm. how how did that move happen for you into becoming more of a theatre designer? Well, it was quite organic because I hadn't really ever thought of the role of a theatre designer. I'd always been involved in theatre from a performance context, so it hadn't occurred to me that that was a role or that was a skill set that I was developing. But when I, after I moved back from Europe to Sydney, my husband and I moved to Mexico and we spent some time there and then we also spent some time travelling through the States. And while I was in the States, I saw a theatre piece there by a company called Mondo Bizarro in New Orleans, which totally broke my idea about what theatre was and what theatre design could be because it was such a physical and performative relationship that the performers had to the actual set. So there were set pieces that were buried within the earth that would be physically dug up and constructed as the story was being told. And suddenly I saw that theatre was an extension of what I was exploring already in my installation and performance work, which was specifically to do with you know, in an abstract term, I suppose, to do with the relationship between the physical body and the environment. And suddenly I was like, oh, I can combine my love of text and theatre with my love of art and performance. And I, it was just revealed that this was this thing that I'd never even thought was a career path that I could go down. And your your work as an artist took you around the world, as far as I know. That you, you've mm. been to Berlin, you've been obviously to Mexico, and and then also in in London and Venice. So you were working as an artist quite a lot, and, yeah. and and internationally. Can you tell us a bit about that? What was that life like for you? I suppose when I finished my degree at the National Art School, I had originally enrolled to study at a painting school in London called St Oswald's. So I moved to London. Um, with the intention to continue training but in a really classical painting-based way. But by the time I got to the end of my degree at the National Art School, the medium and the way I was using medium had vastly changed. So going to a painting school there felt a little bit regressive because I was suddenly working sculpturally and site-specifically. So I spent about a year in London still at that school and training in quite a specific way But while I was there, I visited a friend in Berlin and I think almost anyone who's an artist who's visited Berlin falls in love with the city pretty quickly. So I just decided to move there and to start making work there. So I lived in Berlin for about two years and during that time I lived in an apartment, made work lived pretty a pretty simple lifestyle. I didn't have a lot of money, but one of the great things about that city is, as an artist is that you don't need a lot to be able to produce work or to be able to live. So I spent time just developing my work really while I was there and it was this wonderful opportunity where I could afford to live and interact with other artists in a way that just really helped me form ideas. And at the end of the time that I was there, I had applied to an artist-in-residence program in Venice. So that kind of brought the my time in Europe to a close. I spent four weeks on an island just off the mainland of Venice, developing a site-specific work there, and then came back to Sydney to complete it. 
Then how do you end up at NIDA and doing the theatre design course? What's the sort of segue there and, and how did you want to keep moving that interest forward, I guess? Part of the reason why there was a shift in my practice came somewhat out of necessity because installation art is not very saleable. Um, it's a very difficult thing to create and store underneath your bed and pull out when someone wants to buy it. So I was also working as an arts administrator and also as an art teacher at the same time and I found it increasingly difficult to cons- constantly be juggling those different aspects of work. And when I saw the work in New Orleans, I think what I responded to it was just the purely physical manipulation and interaction between the set or what was what became the set and the performer but every I think up until that point my understanding of theatre and theatre design was always the set or space as a backdrop to a performance that was taking place and that it was something to look at that looked pretty but it didn't necessarily have um, a relational force in response to the performer. So I think that, that when I saw that and I realised that there was the a whole world of, of possibility to kind of create set as an interrupting force or as a force or tension within which a performer could respond, then I... Um, decided that I was really interested in developing my skills as a designer and going down that path. So I applied to NIDA and was surprised when I got in. And then I started that and that's a whole beast unto itself. And so now your first show here at STC is uh, Ayad Akhtar's play Disgraced, which is being directed by Sarah Goods, our resident director. Can you tell us a bit about the play? So the premise of the piece is um, it's about a Pakistani-American who was born in America but whose parents were from Pakistan and his relationship with his wife, who is a white American artist. She's really fascinated by Islamic forms and is creating art based on those forms and he's more or less turned his back on Islam and doesn't find it a particularly useful um, thing to include in his life or he's he's become an apostate so he's denied his religious upbringing and he's kind of amused or bemused by his wife's fascination with Islam but he's not particularly interested in himself and really their relationship is at the crux of the work and it's about the disintegration of that relationship but also his downfall due to a series of events of events that unfold And what I think is really fascinating about it is kind of there's a sense of the Greek tragedy within it, that these forces are at play, that are beyond his control and there are certain situations that come into alignment which trigger the next step of his unravelling. And I think that that was what was most fascinating about it. And can you talk us through the design of the play? Mm-hmm. It's set in New York. It's set in uh, an Upper East Side, lovely penthouse apartment. And that's what we see when we come into the theatre. We yeah. see that apartment and it sort of it surrounds us to yeah. a certain extent. What was the decision? Because it's, it's, in some ways it's unusual to have such a naturalistic set, um, such an architectural set. Mm. Can you talk us through that? Well... To be honest with you, naturalism isn't really my thing. (laughs) So I was a little bit... uh, My tendency is toward abstraction and I think that that's because of my background as an artist. But what was really evident about this text is that 
in order to really focus on the unravelling of these individuals, you needed to have a space that was really stable with um, a sense of their reality that they inhabited. So the question for me was, can I find my own voice and my own way to tell this story visually? Can I allow the space to be dynamic in a way that I'm interested in whilst also maintaining the naturalism that it needs in order to support the text? And I was really excited when we came to a point and I looked at the set and I felt like I had achieved that, that I wasn't just simply creating a space where I could tick off, yes, we have a chair and yes, we've got a table and a couch, but that I had managed to tap into something in the work that was more psychological. And for me, that was to do with the epic scale of it because that space in particular, Wharf One, it is such a blatantly theatrical theatre space that usually your response to that space would be just to declare the theatre making of it. So normally you would see black walls with maybe a set inside it whereas we made a really conscious choice for that not to be the case in this piece and one of the key elements is really large scale windows so there's this sense of void beyond those windows and for me it was about bringing this outside world in and also giving reference to these forces that were at play which were out of the control of the individuals. So on the one hand, it is this kind of lovely, bougie Upper East Side apartment and it was really fun to go shopping and think, hmm, what would I buy if I had heaps of money and I could buy anything? You know, it's that was one part of it, but the other part for me, I suppose, as an artist is to do with the spatial relationships within that space. And there was a very conscious decision to create almost like a well within the space. So all of the lines of the space draw down toward the dining table, which is where our most uh, our crisis scene takes place in the third scene, is really kind of surrounding this dining table. So that's at the lowest point in the space and it's closest to the audience and the audience wrap around that point. And then everything else from that kind of height-wise leads upward. So there is energetically and also aesthetically this drawing force to that part of the stage which I think is quite useful. And so the visual is basically emphasising the drama that's there in the text Mm. and there in the performance. Yeah. So there's often a a conversation in theatre about the primacy of the text. Is the playwright the most important person in the room even if they're not there? Is Mm. the director the most important? That's that's a kind of ongoing dialogue and attention that exists. Or is in the theater. designer the most important? Or, exactly, person. is the designer the most important? And so I'm curious as to you found something in the writing from yeah. Ayad Akhtar that you could connect to visually. How do you then work with with Sarah Goods, the director? How do you how do you incorporate her vision and and kind of pass both Ayad Akhtar's desires as a writer and Sarah Goods's vision as a director through your own artistic language, I guess? Well, because I don't think that those visions are separate things. Um, the way that you've just described the role that each of those people play in the creation of a work sounds like there is a writer who's had a vision for this work and then a director who has a vision for it and then a designer who also may have some way that they might want to express something. But I think that my job as a theatre maker, and I think that Sarah would agree with this, is that it's not really... It doesn't feel as separate as that. I'll always return to a text in order to find a solution. I don't think that there's any point in creating a work that isn't supporting the text in the first place. 
what we want to do with that text, we come to through a series of very long conversations, which are often really fun and sometimes really painful. But Sarah and I probably spent, you know, 40 hours just talking about the text before we even spoke about possible design solutions for it. So what we do during that time is talk about the ideas that are evident within the text, how they relate to us as an audience in Australia watching the piece, whether or not we think that this work should still be set in the States and with this work it was really obvious that it should be because it's quite specific to that time and place in the States 10 years after 9-11. But did we need to extend that to accents for the cast? Now that's not a design decision but unless I understand, unless we have a conversation about that and we have a communal understanding of what we're trying to achieve with the work as a team, then I think that there's less of a cohesion between what you might say is the director's vision and then the resulting design. So as a result of our long conversations, it just feels like we're very much on the same page and we start in a conceptual place which has nothing to do with how it's going to be realised And I suppose that the voice of the designer maybe becomes more clear in some of those really small decisions. There are things that I I would decide that another designer wouldn't and they might be to do with really specific details and an aesthetic leaning. So I think you get a sense of a designer through some of those aesthetic choices that are then made. But there's as far as the work itself and how it presents visually, I think it's very much a com- it's a joint vision between the director and the designer. It strikes me that compared to your visual artwork where you were working, I guess, generally solo, mm. this is a very collaborative medium theatre. Yeah. So as- I was worried about that. What were you worried about? <laughs> well, because I tried to do collaborative art in the past, actually with my ex-husband. He always wanted to, to do collaborative artwork, but it always just ended up being projects that he wanted to do and he wanted help with. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't really like the idea of collaborating very much after that experience. Um, and I think one of the difficulties with that is that as an artist – particularly as a conceptual artist, unless you're so in tune with what the other person, unless you're really both on the same tangent, it's like, well, we just want to make two different works, so why are we doing this together? Whereas there are certain things that obviously Sarah as a director is way more skilled at than I am and I would quite happily go, oh, babe, you look after that. I don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. So there is obviously a delineation of role there, and I think that that really helps because there's this clarity about that we can create the conceptual foundation of a work together, and there may be things that I say to her that are non-design-based that feed into the work, and there are other things that she says to me about design where it may not be what I initially thought, but I go, oh, yeah, that's such a better idea than the one that I had, you know. It's it's something that's a lot more fluid, but at the end of the day I think that it does make it easier because if you find yourself on a slightly different tangent to the director, if you don't totally gel, which wasn't the case with Sarah and I, we very much did, so it wasn't a difficulty. There was nothing to negotiate or navigate. But if you don't, you can always fall back on 
your designated roles at the end of the day. And so I think the main thing as a designer, if you find yourself not necessarily naturally gelling with a director, is to try and understand at least what they're trying to achieve so that you can say, well, if you're trying to achieve this, then I can tell you that visually this is going to support it or it's not, you know. So it's kind of, I suppose with any design process, it's about asking what is the problem and how to best solve it. In your in this whatever it is four or five months that you've had here or like longer since the last season brochure is there anything that you that um, in your experience at STC that you think everyone should know about? Oh, I really think that we should have a company boat. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm serious. You can put this in the podcast too. Don't cut it. I'm banging with the mic. Now he's going to cut it. Um, No, but I do think we should have a company boat because we're right on the water and it would make sense to the um, production teams to be able to zip across between the wharf and the opera house. And I also think that it's a really wonderful way of um, tying in some branding and marketing for the STC on the water. It could be a tinny, but with the rainbow kind of stripey thing that they're doing at the moment and a big flag on the back. So that's one thing. And I've got a crew of people looking into mooring and how much boats are going to cost and who's going to need a licence. But that's a little side project you're, that you're, I've got You're driving I'm though, aren't you? No, I don't have to drive. I just want the boat. Maybe they could drop me places from time to time, like Luna Park or something. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one side project. What's another? <laughs> no, I think that's about it. Probably one of the most amazing things about working here and being here at the company is how much I've learnt from working with people who have been in this industry for decades so all of the production teams here are just amazing and I uh, the ability to walk out of my office and to kind of grab someone and suck their brain of all of the information they know about something that could feed back into me creating a better design for a show is just um, unbelievable. Thank you so much for coming in today, That's Elizabeth. That's okay, you're welcome. Disgraced is playing at Wharf One Theatre here at Sydney Theatre Company until June 4. To discover more behind-the-scenes content, sign up to our monthly newsletter at sydneytheatre.com.au slash enews. And to share your thoughts, because we love hearing them, tag Sydney Theatre Co. on all forms of social media or head to our website for more ways to get in touch. We'll see you at the theatre.